It says in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord. It was good practice. Good practice for the midday. It's good practice to do every day. Not only does it bless the Lord, but there is a connection in our own hearts that at times the posture of our body has influence over the posture of our heart. And it is good to do that, to express in a holistic way the humble, reverent worship that we owe. prayer. Father, you are holy. You are holy, holy, holy. I do not understand the majority of that, what that means. Uh, maybe just one little fraction of what that means. But I know that it means that your glory and your greatness and your perfection and your power, your righteousness and your justice, your patience and kindness goes infinitely beyond the boundaries of my finite comprehension. I know it means that. Thank you for the privilege of being a child of God called to Christ saved by unmerited free grace so that I could understand through the light that you have given me that my purpose is to glorify you. I would not have known that had you not pursued me like the hound of heaven all the way to the cross of earth and to the tomb so that you could Bring the message of grace through Christ's sacrifice that would shed the light and open blind eyes and bring brand new life. Thank you. We're here to worship you today because you are worthy of that. Thank you that we can come boldly right now to your very throne because of your son, his identity and his all-sufficient work of paying sin's penalty, removing sin's guilt and condemnation, and defeating sin's power.
through his resurrection. And Lord, as we are here in prayer, we know we're coming to our Father if we're your children. Father who loved us with that kind of a love is the Father who wants to know about our needs. Not that you don't already know, but you want us to tell you and give you the space within which we make that request for you to show yourself involved. And so, Lord, we do that. Requests all over this sanctuary that I, I have no idea what those are. I know, I know some of them, some of them that break my heart, and I know that they break your heart because they are serious heart-wrenching needs. I pray that you would hear our cries and just in a new, fresh way kick open the floodgates of heaven and pour out your grace. into those lives to give them what they need for this day and this week. Pray for our soldiers, families that are separated through that service to our country and our freedom. Thank you for their service and sacrifice. Protect them and guard their families here with peace. Pray for our leaders locally in the state level, city level, and a national level. God, number one prayer is that those that don't know you draw them to yourself and save them. Wisdom, would you grant that for decisions Courage, would you grant that to them for leadership? And then, Lord, locally here, thinking about the church, I love to pray for the church, not by that meaning cornerstone, for the one church in this city, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is meeting in houses of worship from a few thousand to a few all over the city. I pray that in those places where Christ is central and the truth is the authority, I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would send forth your truth now in mighty power. Praying that for this preacher right here as well. Open my mouth, Lord, to dispense and unleash your word. Thank you that the word is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you that your word, your gospel truth is the truth 
that sanctifies, that grows up, that teaches, trains, equips in righteousness. Thank you that, thank you that you're going to do that today. Keep me out of the way. Jesus, center stage. Fill me with your Holy Spirit toward that end. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. As you do that, I want to begin by giving you a really quick review of the overview look at this entire chapter. Because what I want to do is I want to make a statement here based upon this outline without even really jumping into our text initially. I want to just make a statement based upon the structure of the outline of this chapter about really critical set of truths that should influence us, that should cause us, because of the structure, to stop and say, wow, is this true of us? So here's the structure. Romans chapter 6 is neatly divided into two sections, very clear sections. From verse 1 to verse 14 is the first section, and 15 to 23 is the second section, Romans chapter 6. And what happens in these two divisions is that Paul begins each section in his opening statement with a question. Verse 1 and verse 15. Where we've come in our study is at verse 15. But in these two questions, what Paul does is that he identifies an objection that people regularly were making or a conclusion that people were regularly making in his day to the message that he was preaching of God's absolutely free grace that comes only through faith, only in the person of Christ without any good works of man helping it along. And there were objections to that. Let me read verse 15 where we're going to begin today and then also jump back up and read verse 1 to show you the questions. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means? Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I want you to notice there that those two questions are almost identical. They're not perfectly identical, but they are almost identical. The only difference is they come at the same idea from two slightly different directions. But it is the same concept in both questions. And here is the kind of the overall concept. It's this. Does the grace of God 
sanction or encourage sin. See, chapter 6, verse 1 was on the heels of chapter 5, where Paul said, look, where sin increases, grace superabounds. Grace sweeps in to win the day. And so a faulty conclusion people were making was, wow, if that happens, man, let's sin more. We get more grace that would come in that way. That was the question of verse 1. And those individuals were using that conclusion to validate or give them permission to live a sinless life. To say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, but I still get to have all the pleasures of sin because, man, when I sin, grace just skyrockets. Verse 15, very similar statement, but it comes upon the heels of verse 14, and in verse 14, Paul said, if you're a believer, you're not under law, you're under grace. Meaning, you do not get saved by obeying God's law. You cannot make yourself right with God by doing what the law of God says. And the reason you can't do that is because all of us are sinners and none of us perfectly obey the law. And so that's a hopeless pursuit. But individuals were taking the statement that Paul had made. If you're a believer, you're not under law, you're under grace, and saying, wow, if we're not under law, man, what we can do then is we can live lawless. We can party it up. Or the moralist, the religious, the pharisaical Jew was saying, Paul, you can't preach like that. Because if you preach like that, this message of free grace, absolutely apart from anything we do, that all we do is believe in what Jesus has done, if you preach that, then what that's going to do is you are going to remove any hindrance from people's lives to live right. You're just going to kick right out of the door any check and balance in their life. You're going to promote sin, Paul, by preaching that message. So what Paul did in Romans 6 is that he answered those objections that were consistently being raised to his message. And he did it for the entire chapter. He did it once, verses 1 to 14, and immediately when he finishes... He launches right back into the very same purpose for the second half of chapter 6 with just a little different tweak on it. But it's the same, same idea. The question being asked, does grace sanction sin? Now, 
The reason I wanted to identify clearly and pointedly that structure is to pause right here and say two things about that. To give two truths, two practical applicational principles to first and foremost me as a preacher, but also you as a follower who are called by God to proclaim his truth. And let me couch it in this in these terms. God inspired Paul to write this letter. So here's the question. Why did God inspire Paul to take an entire chapter to solve this one issue? And why did he have him walk through it once in profound logic? We spent eight weeks going through it, the first 14 verses. And then as soon as he was done, launch right into it again in the second half. Why did God do that? I'm going to ask that question even more pointedly with this statement. Because it's, it'll help identify the answer. Why did the omniscient, you know what omniscient means? All-knowing. The omniscient creator inspire this extended and repetitive response to be recorded and preserved in written form in Romans 6. So that omniscient creator standing there in Paul's day not only had omniscient understanding of the objections and wrong conclusions that people were bringing to Paul and his message of free grace in Christ, not only did he fully understand all of that, but he was omniscient so that he inspired Paul with his pen to write a powerful response to defeat that lie in the first audience at Rome to this letter. But not only so, in his omniscience, he could not only look fully at Paul's day, but he could stand right there and he could look all the way down to the final day of history and see the final day as if he was standing in it right then. And not only that day, but he could see every other day as well, all the way back up to the day Paul was writing. And he knew in his omniscience human nature and how over history it would spew the same lies and falsehoods out over and over and over again in each new generation and in each new location so that in his omniscience he could inspire Paul in his pen in the first century not only to answer that problem in his day but to provide an answer that would work in every day down through history all the way to the final day so that right here today in Romans chapter 6, we could have the answer that would refute the lie that says grace encourages sin by the nature of it being free and a gift, grace encourages sin. And folks, that is precisely 
what God did in inspiring Paul to write Romans chapter 6 because with his omniscient eyes, here is what he saw down through history. He saw that the same objection and same false conclusion that was being raised to Paul's teaching would down through history every place where the gospel was preached in an undiluted way would have the same result in a segment of the population. God saw that. I know God saw that because history proves that is exactly what has happened as the grace of God has been preached in an undiluted way. I'll just give you one example. You could probably bring some up in your own mind. But Martin Luther, bringing the church out of the dark ages, a vessel God used to call the church back to the grace of God, the sovereign work of the grace of God. When he started preaching that, do you know what they said about him? The legalist, the moralist said about him, he is changing the doctrine so that he could pursue his own lustful desires. He wants to get married as a priest. He wants to have the ability to have sex, so he is changing the doctrine so that he can appease his lustful appetites. It is, folks, that's the same objection. That is the very same objection Paul was dealing with, stated in that context. And that has happened down through history as great preachers and teachers have proclaimed God's undiluted grace. But not just history in the current day. Do you know that is a regular argument today? I'll even be transparent with you. Years ago, I was one of the individuals that would raise the objection, if you preach the grace of God like that, you are going to cause people to sin by teaching them that it matters not what they do. I objected strongly to that. It's the same story today. So here's the application then. And this application hits me first and foremost, but really is for every believer because you are called to proclaim the truth. Here it is. If I am preaching the true grace of God undiluted, there will be people who hear that truth and do one of two things. They say, wow, that gives me a license to sin. Or they'll say, how could you preach that way? You are going to lead people into sin and lawlessness by preaching that message. Let me say it on the other side of the equation. If nobody ever says that to me or about my preaching, then if enough people, I don't mean one or two are hearing it, but if hundreds are hearing it and nobody ever says that, 
there's a really good indication that I am not preaching the true, undiluted gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it really does look dangerous. It really does look dangerous. Absolutely a work that God does, not what we do, that we can't earn it in any way. In fact, all we deserve is His wrath, but He is the one that pursued us and initiated. And when we were dead and blind, He shed the light in to wake us up and regenerate us and to bring us to life so that He could show us our need and that He planted faith in there so that we could believe and accept and receive Jesus and be saved. And individuals saved. That is dangerous. Who then will want to obey? So, diagnostic test. Am I preaching the true gospel? Are you, as people hear that? And here's the second point of application. That we need to do precisely what Paul did. That we need to preach the true undiluted gospel of God's free grace in Christ apart from any human merit. But we also need to be prepared to respond to the people who say, wow, I can then just sin all I want. Or to respond to the people who say it from the other side of the equation. Man, if you preach that. You are going to lead people into a sinful lifestyle. You see, Paul did not back down on the undiluted message of God's free grace. He preached it loud and long and hard and strong and turned the world upside down in his day by doing it. But he was always ready for those who wanted to use it as a license or sanction for sin, he was always ready to bring to them what to me, I, I'm hoping you've seen that the last eight weeks if you've been here, and you'll see it in the weeks to come here in the last part of Romans 6, but what to me is absolutely airtight, undeniable logic and truth that grace cannot mean that that it has to mean a life moving toward holiness, not a sanction for sin. That's what I want to show you, begin to show you, because I believe that's what Paul shows us here. So let's look now, begin to go through, and hopefully we'll get verses 15, 16, and maybe 17 done. Verse 15, Paul says, does grace sanction sin? By no means. That statement right there in the Greek is the strongest language he could have selected to say no with an exclamation point. This was an emphatic no. This was Paul shouting with his pen, absolutely not. Grace does not sanction sin. 
And after he had made that emphatic statement, then what he does is he begins to unpack a line of thought to prove that it cannot mean that. And he starts with an illustration, a very powerful illustration, an illustration that hits right at the home of where his first century readers lived, an illustration that was very common to them in the physical realm. And he states that and uses that physical principle as a springboard then to leap from that into the spiritual principle that parallels it. Verse 16, he says, and by the way, he says, do you not know? Verse 16, do you not know? That's not a question. Paul is not saying, I'm wondering if you know this. What he is saying here is, you absolutely know this. The illustration I'm going to give you, every one of you, even your children are going to say, yep, I understand that. So let's look at the illustration. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So the illustration is related to a slave master and a slave. And what he talks about is two different slave masters and two different slaves. One slave master is sin and then the slave of sin. And then the second slave master, he identifies or titles obedience and then the slave of obedience. So he is going to talk to us about a spiritual principle using this physical illustration. So let's look at that. First of all, just in a general way, he is making a statement about humanity and slavery. And here is the statement. I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this because I think it'll make sense. You won't like it, I don't think, but it'll make sense. And that is this, humanity is slavery. Let me say that again. Humanity is slavery. Said another way, there is no humanity that is not slavery. His statement here that you are a slave either of the one or the other means this, you're a slave of one or the other. That is the only two camps that you can be divided in. You are either a slave of sin or you are a slave of obedience. One or two, there is no three. And it's, and we'll get into that, but it's not a one and a two, it's a one or a two. That as a human, you're a slave. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But look at the masters. Look at these two masters. Let me point out some truths about them. And what's going to happen here is all of these principles of truth I'm going to draw out of these two or three verses, they're going to all come down to the end to drive one big truth to the hilt, if you pay attention. 
two masters. Here's the first idea here. There's only two. There's only two. There's not three. There's not one and a half. There are two masters. One is sin and the other is obedience. We could also title those as Satan and Jesus Christ. Only two masters. Here's the second reality about those two masters. They are totalitarian. That means that they will be obeyed. They don't compartmentalize your life and say, well, I just want you to do some things for me when it's convenient for you. They are totalitarian in nature, totally controlling in nature. Here's the third thing about those slave masters. They are totally opposite. They are diametrically opposed. They are aggressively and violently against each other. And you read the language there and you'll see that one is working toward death. That's the goal. And he wants it to come, by the way, as painfully as possible. And the other is working toward abundant life. And not just abundant life here and now, but perfect, eternal, abundant, glorified life forever. I mean, these two masters are absolutely antithetical to each other. They are completely separated in all of their goals, all of their desires, all of their intents, how they do what they do, why they do what they do. That's the truth about the masters. What about the two slaves? What about the two slaves? There's a statement here in verse 16 where Paul is just identifying the slave and he gives a title. Listen to it. If you present yourself to anyone as what? As obedient slaves. I want to sh- tell you that what Paul is doing there or what Paul is not doing there is de- f- defining a special type of slave. He's not saying there are some obedient slaves as opposed to that group that isn't obedient. That is so out of context from the whole conversation here. The point he is making that he knows that they know is this. A slave obeys his master. That's the point. A slave obeys his master. That a slave is obedient. It's a statement of fact. It's not Paul saying, here is what you should do if Jesus is your master, and you're his slave. That's not what he's saying. He is saying a slave master demands and receives obedience from the slave. It is a statement of fact, not a suggestion or a command toward action. And then notice that he identifies these two slaves. He says in verse 15, and I'm just taking a few words out of the middle, 
that you are slaves of sin. So one group is defined by this statement, you are slaves of sin. Now just think about that. Slave of sin. The slave master is sin. If the slave master of sin is going to get obedience from his slaves, then what kind of a byproduct or fruit is going to come to a slave that has the slave master of sin? And the answer very simply and obviously is sin. Someone who is a slave master to sin Their life is going to be defined by sin. That is what they're going to obey and do. What does Paul identify or how does he identify the other slave? He says, and again, I'm just taking some words out of the middle. You are slaves of obedience. You are slaves of obedience. Here's the other group. What does that phrase mean? Again, it does not mean that they are bound to obey. They better obey. He is talking about what is already a reality to the church at Rome. He says it very plainly down in, I think it's verse 17, that you've already obeyed the form of teaching. You see, he's making a statement of fact here in what he calls them, that you are a slave of obedience or you obey as a slave. That's the physical principle in their culture that they all would understand. Oh, yeah, I know that principle. And Paul is saying that principle about a slave and his slave master and that obedience just is a reality, he said that principle is true spiritually. Depending upon which slave master you have, you're going to obey that slave master. Okay? Now watch, I'm just going to pause for a second to show you the profound development of his argument. What is he trying to prove? He is trying to answer the statement of verse 15 that says grace encourages sin. He is trying to refute that statement. That's what he's going to do all the way through the last half of this chapter. And so he opens with this illustration that says, and which they understand, oh yeah, if you're a slave, you're going to obey. And so the argument is, how in the world can You then say, hey, I'm saved by grace. Let's go sin. How can you do that if you understand the principle that slavery means obedience? It's absolutely impossible for you to make that statement, that the statement itself is a morbid, ridiculous statement. That grace encourages or sanctions sin. Ludicrous. Just think about what you know about slave masters and their slaves. That's the illustration.
Paul is teaching them how to reason and think through things correctly and logically. So, his language being very precise, Paul crafts this development of thought. Listen to this. To state the fact that your obedience identifies your master. Did that make sense? Paul is making the undeniable point that all you have to do is look at your life if you want to know who your master really is. Let me make that even more pointed by these two statements. If a person is doing the work of Satan, it is proof that Satan is his or her master. The other side of the principle, if the person is doing the work of God, it is proof, undeniable proof, that that person has Jesus Christ as their master. Folks, that's profound logic, undeniable logic. And it's consistent throughout Scripture. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So, just from verse 16, I'm actually going to pull one from verse 19 as well, but primarily all of this from verse 16, key truths about spiritual slavery and spiritual slaves and their masters, all from this verse. Let me give you six things. Number one, you're a slave. You're a slave of one of two masters. Number two, as a slave, you do what your master requires. Number three, you cannot, you cannot be a slave of both of those masters at the same time. Does that make sense? They're diametrically opposed. They're antagonistic violently to each other. You cannot be serving Jesus Christ as a slave to Him and at the same time over here being obedient to the slave master of sin. You cannot. It is impossible for you to do that. Number three, I mean number four, at salvation, what happened is you got a change of slave masters. And with that change came a radical, wholesale, categorical change in your living conditions. Truth five big truth. Your actions speak louder than your profession. Your actions actually prove who your master is. 
One more. This is from verse 19. One more truth about slaves and slave masters. Just going to jump ahead here. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Here's the truth that's couched on each side. One principle stated in two different ways there. Your obedience to your master, whichever master that you have, your obedience to your master grows with time. If you're a slave of sin, it leads to more and more sin. If you're a slave to Christ, it leads to more and more sanctification or more and more right living as you live your life. Now, I need to stop here because I'm aware of an objection that could be raised, a misunderstanding that could be brought to what I've just said. So I want to clarify that, kind of follow Paul's cue here. I want to clarify that. This is not what I'm saying. Capital N, capital O, capital T. This is not what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you commit a sin, then it is proof that you're not saved. That is not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, over the last eight weeks, as we went through the first half of chapter 6, time and time again, we've talked about the fact that we still have a mortal body. Though we are made brand new, we are still connected to this mortal body, and we still have sin. And we are fighting and battling the sin of the mortal body continually until the very end of our life when we see Jesus Christ and we shed this immortality for shed this mortality for immortality, this perishable for the imperishable. It's going to be a battle until that day, and sin will be present at some level until that day in your life. So I'm not saying that if you sin, then you just need to come to the conclusion that you're not saved. And it has to do here with the form of the word sin, the verb there. As it's used in this passage, the verb is talking about a continual pattern. It is talking about a life that is unbridled and unchecked, moving toward sin. That the direction it is going is this direction, not it can never say no to one sin or one temptation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the direction of the life. That if you are a slave of sin, the direction of your life is that you are moving toward sin. So on the other side of the principle, what we are being taught here is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer, that the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life is that you are moving toward God. You are moving toward more and more right actions. You are moving toward more and more of the character and the thoughts and the speaking and the actions that you saw in Jesus Christ in Scripture. 
but that's becoming more true of you. It's one or the other. And the point Paul is making here is that you are either then never static, you are either moving one direction or you are moving another direction. So, all of you, talking about Paul's audience now, so all of you who say grace sanctions sin, grace means I can just go out and do whatever I want. Paul says, I can define you right now. You were never saved. You were never saved. You would not be doing that. You would not be making that claim if you were saved. Categorically proof that you never, you may believe in some extent in Jesus and who he is and what he did, but you haven't really had saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you really had saving faith in Jesus Christ, what would be true of your life is that you would have a new slave master and you would be moving in the direction of more and more righteousness and holiness. Guaranteed. And so the argument, the profound argument Paul makes into a culture in which every other household was living in a slave master, slave situation was, oh, wow, yes, I understand that. Oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. So it all comes down, folks, to a million-dollar question. Who's your master? And you get at the answer for your life by looking at your actions. As you watch your life, what is the fruit? What's the direction? And answering that question will help diagnostically shine a light of truth into your own soul about the condition of your own heart. And that logical development of truth is the answer that you need to be equipped with to say to somebody, free grace without human works promotes sin. And you can say, that is so untrue. And here is why it's untrue. Logically, I can prove it to you. And do just what Paul did there. Now, I'm aware that there could be some who are wondering, well, Brad, it seems like your comment of everyone is a slave, even the Christian, is in direct conflict with some very clear statements in Scripture, like, here's probably one of the most famous ones, if the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. Free indeed. So is that a contradiction to the principle here? Not at all. Because the way we read that 
When the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. We read it and hear it with the ears that we want to hear with. Meaning this. I believe most of us read that and say, wow, free indeed. I mean, that means absolute, unequivocal freedom. That means I'm never going to be a slave to anything again. That means my salvation makes me autonomous. That's wrong. That's wrong. Your salvation does not make you autonomous. It frees you from sin. You are free indeed from sin. We've been talking about that since Romans chapter 5, verse 12, for about four months. But being free indeed means that your one place of true freedom is in slavery to Christ. Now, that sounds like it's a great conflicting statement, but if you think about it for a minute, you'll see that it is undeniable truth because when you come to Christ, what happens is He makes you new. He takes the heart of sin and He gives you a brand new heart so that at salvation, what happens to you is that a heart that was after sin insatiably now really desires holiness. That's what happens at salvation. I don't mean that you always walk it out, but you have an interchange where you are birthed into a new existence, and that new existence, that new heart, really desires to do what God wants you to do, and you know He is holy, and you so long to be holy. That's a part of the Christian condition. And so Jesus Christ, when He saved you, Scripture says, and Paul has talked about it a lot here, He did it by a redemption. What redemption means is that He paid a price. It was like a purchase where he bought you out of the slave market of the world's sin where you were hopelessly in bondage. And the price he paid was his own blood, his own death. And that price that he paid didn't just buy you out of the market of sin, out of the bondage to sin. It bought you for himself. I want to read that verse, Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem, there's the redemption price, us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That means he purchased you and yes, he freed you from sin, but he bought you to be his own possession. He bought you to be his. You changed slave masters. You didn't get out of slavery. You just changed slave masters. But oh, how radical the change is. And here is the connection between being a slave of Christ and being truly free. It is only once you have been made new and been given the new heart 
by the grace of God that desires holiness, that will desire it first. And then secondly, with that package of grace are given the Holy Spirit to indwell you, not just to desire to do the right, but to have the power to live it out. Then and only then are you free to live for your created purpose. That's what it means, free indeed. Only through Jesus can you be free indeed to live for the purpose for which you were created, and that is to bring glory to God. And if Jesus had not saved you and given you a new heart and then given you his spirit to live in you, to both will and to act according to his plan, you could never be free to pursue pursue your purpose. That's why you're free indeed even when you're in slavery. Because it's the only place where you're free to do what you were meant to do. I know it's like drinking out of a fire hose. This is coming fast and furious here. If only in salvation are you free to pursue your purpose for which you were created. What is the purpose for which you are created? Romans 8, 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's God's plan for you? To be conformed to the image of his son. What does God want for your life? He wants you to be like Jesus Christ. That's the plan. And only in salvation are you given the desire for that and the power of the Spirit of God living in you to carry out that desire. So the only way you can be free is to be a slave of Jesus. How then, remember the context, how then, Paul is arguing, could you say that grace sanctions sin? It is so 180 degrees from the truth. Verse 17, and I'll just give you a comment here and wrap this up. By the way, I'm going to defend myself and my long messages here for a minute. I listened this week, very famous pastor, uh, alive today, great, great preacher, great, I think, pastor, huge ministry. I don't mean he's great because of the size of his ministry. He's great because how God's used him. And he was telling the history of his church. And all through his 10 year, early years, he preached an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes every Sunday. So you are lucky. <laughs> Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Do you see that's the connection of what I was just saying, obedience from the heart? You could have never been obedient from the heart until you got a new heart. Then you want to do what God wants you 
to do, and you are empowered to do what God wants you to do. And an interesting form of expression. That he says you became obedient from the heart. Listen to this. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Is that like backwards? I mean, wouldn't you think it would read that that you became obedient to the standard of teaching that was given to you? But it doesn't say that. It's not saying that the standard of teaching was given to you. It says you were given to it. Here's the connection. It's further proof of the argument. Every statement in here further proves the argument. The word form there is like a dye or like a mold that makes its mark. And the point that he is making is that you have the desire when you're given a new heart (coughs) to do the right things, to be committed to this truth. And what happens is that mark is going to be made. Roman church, you became obedient to the form or the standard of the teaching. It is the proof that you're saved. If you're not becoming obedient, it's the proof that you're not saved. 21st century. How then can you say grace sanctions sin? the same argument knocked out of the park over and over and over again. I just come down now to a, a key truth and a big idea. Here's the key truth about slaves and masters, and I've already mentioned it, but the key truth is this. When you have a master change, Everything changes. Has it? Can you look at your life and say, yep, my story. But here's the one overall big idea of the entire chapter. I'd argue this, I I mean, I don't claim to be a very good theologian and all, but I'd argue this point with anybody on the planet. The big idea of Romans chapter 6 is this. Grace does not sanction sin. Grace secures holiness. Grace does not sanction sin. Grace does secure holiness. Not Holiness in that you're perfect all the time, but holiness in that you are becoming more and more like Christ. Yes, you make a couple steps forward, then at times you take a step back or a step off the path, and then you have to get back on and make a couple more steps, but the general direction of your life is increasing Christ-likeness. Because grace does not sanction sin, grace, every single time, in every single life, secures that movement toward holiness. If it doesn't, there is no saving grace. 
Holy Spirit. Just a word of prayer here, and we'll sing. Father, just two questions quickly, two requests of you quickly. There are those in this room, I know that there are, by the number that is here, that are not saved. And I am, I'm asking you, God, I am pleading with you that you would perform that miracle of free grace through the word of God being unleashed to open blind eyes, regenerate spiritually dead lives so that the condition of being lost can be seen and then did you follow that by granting faith, by giving faith so that there could be belief unto salvation, unto justification, unto being made right with God, all based upon and only upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to save people right here today, God. And then secondly, Lord, I'm asking you to sanctify people right here today. And I know what's been happening You've been doing it in my own heart. As I preach through this, you've been talking to hearts about Christian hearts, about where their lives is not lining up. Yeah, there's a movement toward obedience, but you've been showing where there is too many steps in disobedience. You're not condemning, but you're convicting so that there would be repenting so that there would be cleansing, so that there would be empowering, so that there would be holiness and ultimately your glory. Do that as well. Perfectly, individually, in each heart. I pray that in Jesus' name.